Welcome to today's Ascendo Reliability webinar. This is one in, in an ongoing series I'm titling Fundamentals. And the intention here is, is to create a, a series of webinars that cover the basics, the, the fundamentals essentially, and some basic definitions, some basic insights and starts. And the intent is to eventually bundle these into a, a series of recordings that are available for those looking for the basics, for the starting places for many of these different tools. Um, as many of you know, up on Ascendo Reliability, we've got lots of articles and other material that's related to these topics. And uh, I'm intending to build out the pages instead of just a, a webinar recording or the audio of this goes into a podcast, is also include all of those other reference materials and links that are in the in the body of work that is now the Ascendo Reliability site. Um, I don't know that we have all that much on hazards analysis. I, I do remember doing a podcast on speaking of reliability with Carl on it, uh, yet there's, I, I'm sure there's one or two other articles there too. I got to do a little bit more research to find that. All right, so welcome everybody to today's webinar and let's get started. I remember years ago, um, I was talking to a retired chemical engineer, and he was called in to do uh, expert witness work on a regular basis. And I asked him once, "Why do you get so? Why are you so busy with all of these legal cases? You seem to be working more now than you did when you were working full time." And he goes, "Well." He says, "I don't understand how anybody can bring a product to market in the U.S." Um, we're such a litigious society that if there's any hint or any problem with a product, not that it doesn't work, but that it causes harm, or, or it's even if it's used inappropriately, um, there's so many ways a product can cause problems. Now, I by no means am trying to display uh, lawyers and their legal system in the U.S. as a crocodile in the, in the water, yet it's one of those things that is part of doing business in some parts of the world, especially here. And they're just looking for something that goes wrong with a product. It's not designed correctly, it's not uh, operating such that it fails safe or it doesn't have appropriate warnings and, and so on. The issue is, is that Everything, whether it's a tree in my yard or a crocodile in the in the river, there's danger out there. Now, some of these dangers are inherent, and we know about them. If you're going to go swimming off the Farallon Islands uh, just outside of San Francisco, it's known to have great white sharks. And it's not that you go out there just for fun. It's it's a, quite a trip to get there, and it's really, really cold water, so it's not, uh, you know, a, 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 a South Pacific island or beach resort kind of place. But there are places in the world, and there are products that we produce that have inherent dangers. I mean, think of your kitchen. Um, we, you probably have one or many knives, and some are intended to be very sharp, uh, used improperly or just dropping one. Uh, you have to remember not to try to catch it with your foot if you drop a butcher knife. Um, you know, if I drop something in the shop or in the, in the kitchen, I often try to buffer that, that fall, uh, although uh, I've been lucky and not had to try that with a, with a knife. There's an inherent danger with some of those things. And so, but our products serve a purpose. They serve some benefit or some um, uh, utility of what that function is, what that product is actually trying to do. So let's see, TCAM, I notice it, it might also be my voice. I'm, I'm, I, I know I've got a little tickle in the back of my throat. So how's it sound to everybody else? Hopefully my, it's not too loud or, or sounds fine. All right. Yeah. So maybe TKIM just try the uh, five by five. Thanks. Um, uh, 
try resetting your, uh, if you're using a headset, resetting the jack or something like that, that might do it. Rattly background. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, I'm sorry. Um, we'll Hopefully the recording comes through clear in case you lose the audio altogether. And hopefully my voice holds up. But the, the, the basic idea whether, um, I, well, one thing I saw was that uh, uh, just the other day on social media, and I'm trying to remember where I saw the image, was a four inch thick block of aluminum um, uh, in a, in a, in a a square of aluminum, essentially four inches thick, and I think it was probably a twelve inch uh, in in uh, cross or a four inches thick and a twelve inch uh, a one foot target. And um, I I'm not sure who did the experiment, but they took a I think it was uh, on the order of uh, and I think it was on the order of about a third of a kilogram. Or no, that would be too heavy. Um, on the order of a, a, a chunk of plastic, say, about the size of this cheese that's sitting on this trap, you know, an, an ounce or so, a couple of ounces in the U.S. scales, and and uh, somebody will have to help me translate that into the units the rest of the world uses. Uh, and they shot it at the aluminum at fifteen thousand miles an hour. And it vaporized, it melted a crater about two inches deep into the aluminum. Now, a floating piece of space debris uh, isn't necessarily dangerous in and of itself, uh, unless it hits something. And so it's your product, your system, uh, more than likely has some intended function or some set of purposes, yet in its use, is it, and it's a vague definition here, I'm kind of struggling with how to really approach it, but is it safe enough to use for its intended purpose without causing collateral harm or unintended harm? Even though it could, like this uh, mousetrap, uh, I don't know whether it would sever our finger or not, but I'm sure it hurts, and I, I actually know that from experience, that getting snapped by one of these things does hurt. But that goes into a much larger question, and this is one of, of a good number I'll be asking here, is in the insurance business, in the legal profession, at least here in the U.S., uh, in product design, um, whether creating an attachment for a, a wing to an aircraft or creating a new surgical uh, a device for use in operating rooms, or a diagnostic piece of equipment, or something that attaches to your car. Whatever the product is, at some point, one of the risks is, is this product may harm or kill a human. Um, but how do you put a number on that? Does anybody know of a way that that's done? No video. Hmm. Sorry for waiting. I'm glad it's sounding good. The, we, the slides aren't moving too terribly fast, but they, they should be on the screen. You might have to log out, log back in, see if that works. But how do you put a, if we're going to talk about safety and hazards, at the end of the day that we have to um, put a number on it in order to balance what kind of design we make and what kind of product we release. Yeah, in insurance companies, uh, have uh, ideas of like earning potential plus a lump sum, um, experience based on airline disasters, uh, payouts from previous uh, judgments or settlements and so on. Um, is a human life worth a million dollars, for example?
Yeah, you're right, Dennis. And there's been, and I know it goes back and forth and there's a lot of different discussions about it, yet it's one that every industry, um, <laughs> yeah, Mark, that's a, I, I, that's a chemist answer to it. Um, if you add up some of the trace elements, I think our value goes up a little bit. The, the notion though is, in a good a handful of folks were looking at, you know, past cases or past situations and settlements, others have, but at some point people have had to put a number on it. And earning potential is a common technique. Yet how far out does that go? Does that make a young person's uh, uh, life more valuable than an older person? Um, does it change with the person's inherent uh, circumstances or not and so on? And it gets pretty complicated pretty quick. And, and we're not going to spend much more time on this. But the idea is, is that if it's $10 million and our product has an inherent danger in it, we may spend way more time and energy making it safer. If the value is $10,000, um, we may choose not to do the design as much as possible. So at some point, we have to make decisions on guards, on fail-safe designs, on uh, approaches to creating a safe product that doesn't interfere with its primary features or benefit, yet makes it um, safe. And, and that's a part of why we do hazard analysis, is we're wrestling with this as, well, how safe is safe enough? And at the end of the day, it's not about getting snapped by a, a small mousetrap that uh, may pinch your finger. It's, it's, will the wing fall off the aircraft? And how much redundancy, how much weight do we put into that, how much structural work goes into it, how much um, design consideration goes into it, is a big question. Now, the, a lot of the discussion around autonomous vehicles is saying, well, how do we design it such that it's going to be safe when there's no steering wheel anymore? Now, some would argue that it's safer when you take the human out from behind the wheel, while others are saying it has to be an order of magnitude safer than the best drivers. Now, I don't know what the right answer is or how that's going to pan out, but it is one of those questions that we as a society are going to have to, to sort out and, and, and settle. Uh, and it, it's an ongoing discussion. So hazard analysis is very much like that kind of discussion. We'll, we'll, let's go into a little bit about what it is and how it's similar to a, a few other things, some of the, the uh, procedures and, and, and other elements to it. And we'll circle back to some of these larger questions as we go. All right. Yeah, you know, and yeah, Greg, Gregory, you make a good point. It's, it's sometimes it's, it's uh, it's the nature of the harm. You know, if it's like the Ford Pinto or some of the more recent cases where we've ignored signals that something's not safe and shipped it anyway versus it's a unforeseen, unforeseeable type of problem or accident. Um, it changes the nature of the of the culpability, if, if that's the right word, around a particular event. So hazard analysis uh, is very much like an FMEA. Um, we're looking at what could happen, what could go wrong, we're, we're going to prioritize some actions, and it should be done with the team. It's not something that uh, two people in the back room go off and knock out the uh, spreadsheet, uh, which I've seen. And you don't do that, you shouldn't do that, I should say, with FMEA either. So the idea is that it's very, very much like an FMEA, and we'll see some more similarities as we go. But here's a quick question for you. When do you do an FMEA versus doing a hazard analysis? And, and when uh, is a little different question than why. So when would you do each of these kinds of uh, uh, analysis?
handful of people are typing. Um, one of my favorite answers when I asked this uh, in a previous set of training I've done is early and often, right? Like voting in Chicago. I didn't notice if anybody's from Chicago, so please, uh, it's, it's an old joke. Um, during development, you know, some require a HAZOP, which is very, very similar to a hazards analysis. Uh, and there's a variety of different industries that require at, uh, it done during development at some stage. Yet it's like FMEA. It's, it's an ongoing process. Uh, early on in concept, we may be able to complete a good portion of a hazard analysis or even a concept FMEA. But as the design takes shape and materials are selected and we get more uh, firmness around how it's used or where it's used, then an, uh, updating the hazard analysis and updating the design FMEA, FMEA makes sense. They're, they're very related, right? And in the regard of when you do it is early and often. It's not a one-time uh, session like an FMEA series of standards. Yeah. And, and seen a lot of consensus about it as up early, uh, in the early stages when you ideally still have room and space and time and resources to do something to, to mitigate and minimize the safety hazards. Now, what's different about an FMEA is that it's, it's focused on safety. It's, it's focused on not just will this product provide its intended functions? Will it uh, uh, heat up the oven to a, an appropriate temperature in a reasonable amount of time? Will the window controls uh, crank the window up and down at a reasonable rate within our, our specifications? It's not just will it work, it's will it do it with safety in mind? So if, like the window crank, will it stop if there's an obstruction in it that's similar to a child's finger, or will it just keep going? And it's different than does it work in spec? Does it operate safely? Does it have ways to minimize uh, foreseeable problems? And so this focus on safety shifts the discussion from just reliability, right? We're not looking at does it do its intended function over time within spec. It's does the functionality, the use, the storage, the transport, uh, the disposal, all through its life cycle, does it create any hazards? Hazards being something that could harm a person or society or the environment. So it's not limited to just people. I know I've talked about harming folks, people so far, but it's also, will it harm the environment? In, in a good number of the standards that are available on this. Now, every industry does it a little bit different. Some are required, have a pretty rigorous uh, worksheet that, uh, uh, a defined worksheet, I should say, that goes for that industry, the medical industry. Uh, ISO standard, there's a 14,000 series that has stuff, uh, uh, specifics on this. Uh, air, uh, aerospace industry's got their own standards, uh, chemical processing, nuclear industry. Um, the list of industries uh, keeps going on. Yet it's also one that for a consumer product we should consider, right? So can our products work as they're supposed to and still be a hazard? Certainly. A lot of things that we have and use and work on, even if they just have mass, right? They have some weight. I'm looking at my uh, uh, glass of water on my desk that I have. If I drop that on my bare foot, it's very likely I could break my foot. Um, it's not intended to be used only where people are wearing, wearing steel-toed shoes. I have no pr protected, protection against a falling mass. Yet the monitor on my screen uh, is unwieldy to hold sometimes and, and move from place to place. And I don't really try to move it very often. Yet it has its inherent hazard just because it has mass and sharp edges. And so uh, for the parents that are in the audience, you know how your view of your home changes as your a child begins to crawl and to walk. The child proofing, 
uh, if you look at things a bit differently. Well, that's what we're after with this hazard analysis is to look at it from these different perspectives as to where the those hazards whoops, uh, could come in, could show up. Now, there's huge number of hazards that are out there and available. The hard part is, is that as we design a product and we have a target audience for how they're expected to use it, um, the, the number of variables that come into play from how familiar are they with that particular product, how adept or agile are they at handling the product, how aware of the inherent dangers are they of that product. But then also it's how does the surrounding environment and system that are around our product interact with it. So here's where it overlaps a bit with our reliability elements. If material fatigue sets in and an unexpected uh, load uh, fractures our product and it becomes shattered, for example, I'm looking at my water glass, um, now it's posing a completely different set of hazards. It's got sharp edges and glass. Um, if you ever dropped a glass or a, a ceramic mug and it's shattered on the floor, you know that the, some of those pieces are really, really small. And it does take some due diligence to, to prevent the hazard of stepping on a shard of glass. So the hazards come from the product itself, its inherent use, but it also comes from ways that we can foresee or expect it would be misused. So not supposed to put a, a, a banana on the floor, but I have not seen a warning label saying don't put a banana peel on the floor. Um, although there, there are, I did try to look for interesting warning labels and one of my absolute favorites of all time was that uh, um, this product is known to warp space in its immediate vicinity. Uh, yet the list of attempts to educate the population, educate users about hazards or inherent hazards in products. Just, it, it's endless in, in the manuals I have uh, for different power tools, for example. Yeah. yeah, so when we're looking at, and Dana, I think your summary is, is, is right on target, is if with FMEA we're looking at when do we lose the the benefit of the particular product and its features. With hazard analysis, looking at its interaction with other people and the environment around it. And so damage to other piece, assets in your plant, uh, damage to technicians when they're trying to do the repairs, uh, damage to the environment, um, say with contaminations or uh, uh, hazardous waste and those kinds of items. It's a different scope than FMEA, yet it's a simple question is, well, how could this cause harm? And from there on out, it gets into a bit more complex world. So what is safety? Here's a, a basic definition question for you. What is safety? Yeah, and this followed on from your comment. Well, you put safety in quotes, so what is safety? Yeah, and Jeffrey, I'd say it a risk, right? Human risk, and I would add in as some of the definitions I've done is um, the other equipment and assets. You know, so if, even if the building's unoccupied, yet your product catches fire and burns the building down, that's a, a safety risk. Um, yeah, generally it talks about people. Safety, and we almost always talk about that. Um, minimizing danger of getting harmed or hurt and so on. Um, it, it does expand out to the environment. Um, and if we harm the environment, is I mean, one line of reasoning is that if we do it, if it's contamination, it's going to harm the drinking water and, and harm other people. Um, and I'm just looking at safety there, and I'm wondering if I spelled that right. 
I don't think I did. But anyway, the idea is is that it's thinking through what are those risks? What is the uncertainties that could cause harm? And harm in some standards is pretty general, uh, loss or harm. And so the basic procedure, and we'll go through this pretty quick because it's very familiar uh, to many of you that are familiar with FMEAs. It's the basic idea is, is, well, what's the scope or focus for the study? What is the product or system that we're going to uh, conduct the hazard analysis for? Pretty standard. What's, what are the drawings? Do we have a prototype? Do we have a working model? Uh, let's gather the people that are familiar with not only the product or system we're dealing with, but also people that are familiar with how it's used, where it's used, what kind of environment is it going to be in, in its, and ideally get some people that are familiar with actually using the product in the field, in its intended locations. There might do, be doing, you might do a little bit of pre-training. What's the worksheet we're going to use? What are the columns? What are the terms and definitions we're going to use? How is this? It's simple things like uh, brainstorming, you know, no bad ideas, build on other people's comments and suggestions, don't critique, don't jump to con conclusions or solutions. Um, some of the basics of FMEA apply to hazard analysis. One part that's interesting, though, and it's part of preparation, I think, should be done for FMEAs also, is you're pulling this team together for some number of hours, you know, two to ten hours or so, to do an analysis. The intent of the analysis is to do something with the results. Not just put it in a filing cabinet, but to reduce or minimize hazards. Uh, and so get your funding and support to actually take action as needed uh, as you start. If you have no intention of ever using the results to actually do anything, in my opinion, is then you should ask why you're bothering to, to fill out the paperwork. So the intent is not to fill out a form. The intent is to make a safer product. And uh, you can go with that. Yeah. Yeah, I agree, Brian. You're kind of jumping ahead of me a little bit. Uh, I think I have a slide about how what's the use of a, a warning label in a, in a manual. The, uh, so we identify hazards, right? We figure out the brainstorming part. It's a very similar processes to an FMEA where it's, well, what could go wrong? What could cause, what could, how, for example, the water glass. I mean, if I'm doing a hazard analysis on a water glass, it could be dropped. What happens when it drops? It could shatter. It's a glass uh, a vessel. Um, it's thinking through, well, how slippery is the surface? What happens when it gets wet? When it, what happens when it's full? Um, when it's got cold water poured into it or hot water? Could I make tea with this water glass, for example, or with the heat? of a transition for it and, and cause it to fracture. Uh, a simple brainstorming, in 10, 15 minutes, you can figure out all kinds of horrible things that could go wrong with your product and how it's used. But that's a start, right? This is gather as much information as possible. But part of it also is, is well, what's the, what are the plausible chain of events? Sure. My water glass could shatter if it's struck by a meteor, yet the likelihood of that will probably drop out real quick as, as just the chance of that occurring. Uh, besides, you would have other problems if a meteor struck my desktop uh, rather than just uh, shards of glass from my water glass. Yet, it, it does include not just your product. It's how it's used and transported and carried and set up and installed and maintained. It's also what's near it and around it that could, that could interact with your product to create uh, unsafe events. But then it goes on, I think, in a prudent way of doing it, is then seeds your brainstorming with, well, how could it be misused? And then how could it be misused, but unknowingly misused. I, I, I think Kirk 
is on the line here. And I think, Kirk, you and I have talked about that just about any tool, or maybe it was Adam. I think it was Adam in speaking of reliability episodes that it doesn't seem to matter what tool he picks up, he uses it as a hammer. Um, I think it was, it was Adam. I don't think he's doing that out of ignorance that you're not supposed to use a crescent wrench as a, a hammer to finish setting a nail, um, but it can be done. Now, if that action causes that device to shatter or to break or to cause harm, um, that could be a problem. Yet, uh, uh, it's also thinking through how people could misuse it unknowingly and, and then what you can do about that. And then what you after we, and then like it or FMEA, like it or we prioritize. Now, what you, I hear there's typically two uh, scores the probability of occurrence, like a meteor hitting my water glass is exceedingly rare, yet the chance of it slipping out of my hand in handling it in and out of the sink or in and out of the dishwasher or in and out carrying it up the stairs is reasonably high. Is and then what's the severity? What is the the path there to harm? How much harm could it do? Now, a, a broken water glass is not going to harm my neighbors. Yet there are things that, if my house caught on fire, um, that it could harm my neighbors and and, uh, and firefighters and so on. So different severities and very much like a FMEA is each of the standards that, that are associated with these provide um, uh, different scales and ways of weighting these things and so on. In some set these things, criteria is that it has to have no hazards uh, above a particular score. And so it, it depending on your industry and your standards, and, and your scoring uh, algorithms, there, there may be different rules around these, but it's very much like an FMEA. What's the chance of it occurring? And then what's the, the effect or the severity? And put a score to that. Very, very similar to FMEAs. Now, very quickly, if you've ever, ever done one of these or an FMEA, it's very easy to come up with hundreds, if not thousands, uh, with a little bit of concerted effort of issues or problems. And there might be 30 or 40 that are, yeah, these are likely and have enough severity that we really need to do something about those. Yet, how, how do you decide how deep in that list to go? Whether it's an FMEA or a um, hazard analysis. Yeah, so we prioritized Jeffrey and we got a list, right? We have the, the scoring and the risk priority number that gives us a rank ordering of the things that are uh, topping out the list of most common or most likely to occur and or uh, most severe or in some mix of those. But let's say we have 30 things on the list. Each one's going to cost us at least $1,000 each to solve. We have how far do you go? I'm just using a random number there. As you know, some things will be simple to solve. Some will be really difficult to mitigate or, or minimize the hazard. And some may be technically not possible. How far down this list do you go? Yeah, I, I agree, Jeffrey. It's yeah, it's going to be how risk tolerant your organization is. And to, to use a tolerant management term there, to, to tolerant, to, to, some industries have criteria and, to, and, and standards. Others do it by engineering judgment and management approval, saying we're going approval to balance the cost 
the benefit of, of using this product uh, and take, minimize the risk to a fixed level. Ever do it just inherently. There's no overt discussion or decision point. Now, I much prefer products that are well thought out and 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 uh, balanced and reasoned saying, here's our time and resources, here's our intended audience, here's our expected uh, here's a series of risks and hazards we're facing, here's what we can do, here's what we're trying to do, here's what we're, do. Here's what we're, we're, we're evolving the product to do, and it's still a point though, you're going to have to say we have to ship it. Point though, so you're right, Brian. Like in the the, the um, FMEAs, the, the ones with the highest severity MEA need to have the, uh, some attention. And it's 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 always going to be a gray area, um, and it's working well with your team with the the key decision makers that are signing off on that this is an acceptable risk given our technology, time, market, and so on. Um, it's always going to be an uncertain spot uh, in, in these processes. So you should, well, I guess you could look forward to that. All right. So what do you do? You get this whole list. What are our So what are your options? So what can we do? What do you do about it? Now, so now one option is to say, oh, okay, those risks exist, uh, buyer beware. Now that doesn't fly very far in the US. It also isn't good for your products if it's, um, I think there was a Dolbert cartoon where, that it exploded spontaneously and sent out metal darts in every direction. Um, the series you know, goes over the top sometimes in its cartoon, yet, Knowing the risks that are involved with the product, are they appropriate for the intended benefit or use of the product? Uh, a surgeon's scalpel is inherently dangerous, but in the hands of a surgeon, it's life-saving. So it's, are the, are the circumstances around its, its use and intended use appropriate for the hazards it presents? And so, Here's a few things that we can do uh, and should be thought through on as many as you can get the time and resources and is appropriate to do. And that's the gray area in this whole process. So number one, just like an FMEA, let's design it out. If there's a hazard and we can eliminate the possibility of that hazard coming true by design, um, we can do if that is practical, uh, and that's that gray area again. Design it out. Just eliminate that from from happening in your product. Now, the design out part is a balance of what is the intended function of the product, right? What is it supposed to do? And if I put on too many guards, or if I blunt the edge of a surgeon's scalpel so that it doesn't cut people in inappropriately. Um, the surgeon loses that functionality. So that's not really an option there. Yet, uh, if the hazard is it uh, slips and it cuts inappropriately, then creating a, a structure that is better or easier to hold may be a design feature that we put into it, reducing the chance of occur occurring. But where possible, change the material, change the design, change the um, its interactions with the environment such that that chance of that occurrence of that risk manifesting itself or that that hazard manifesting itself just goes away. Now that's why we put in flame retardants in a lot of electronics is that we have hot devices in an enclosure and if it gets too hot it will self-extinguish. A lot of the flame retardants we use um, just squelch the fire right at the source. And, and that's a design choice. We, they're expensive to add into the epoxy overmolding, yet it's just trying to eliminate the chance of this catching and going further in, a, in starting a fire. So lots of design choices. Those are by far the best option. Um, they can be expensive or they can be just 
no problem whatsoever. It may be inherently the way things are designed, yet it's part of uh, your first line of attack at minimizing hazards. The second part is to create something that reduces the severity if something goes wrong. If we have a, the chance of occurrence that it's going to, say, my water glass, if I drop it, if it was made out of Pyrex, um, it, one, it could handle hot water versus cold uh, fairly easily. It's probably more robust. I could make it thicker so that it's less likely to shatter. Uh, it's more likely to break my foot if I try to stop it with my foot. Um, and it becomes a balance. What's the likelihood of breaking that chain of events such that if something's going wrong, <clears throat> that it doesn't cause more harm or causes the highest severity type of, of, of uh, hazards. Now, I, I chose this um, uh, image on, in particular because um, that device that that rope is going through is just a loop. It goes around the base of his harness. There's a little um, carabiner there, and the rope loops around that. And it goes um, in and out of that um, uh, um, we call them uh, um, air traffic controllers, ATCs. Uh, I'm not really sure what their true name is, but uh, they're used in rock climbing uh, as a belay device. And when you're using it appropriately, you can change the angle of that rope such that the rope will bind. It'll stop moving. Your body becomes the anchor. But if you let go of that rope, this person has two hands on it. If you let go of that rope, it'll just go flying right through that device. There's no automatic break. Where if somebody is falling and you don't have your hands on the rope, they're going to fall. And it's a real hazard. Now, it's lightweight. It's easy to use. It's got lots of features if it's used appropriately. There's another similar device that's been invented over the years, and it's called a Grigri. And it has a fail-safe device in it that makes it a little more awkward to set up and to uh, set up the rope within the device. Uh, but if you let your hands go, it will lock. It will just stop the climber from falling. Uh, so it has this fail-safe design in it. It costs more. It's more cumbersome to use. And so you still see these devices in use because of that trade-off of perceived risk versus benefit. And so. Oftentimes when we do fail-safe designs, they, they add complexity or, or, or um, cost to a product. Now, in some industries that's accepted, in some industries it's expected. In most designs, we have options and in, 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 in considerations of how to create a fail-safe design. And so it's, it's a second level of option. It focuses on reducing the risk of a sequence of events uh, from happening. And in this image, if you let go of the rope, it just goes. Is this going to, if they're falling, they fall. Whereas if it's a grigri, if you let go of the rope, it'll lock. They will, the fall will be interrupted. So another realm in the options, and it's, it's interesting that in the hazard analysis, we do not put in the detection column like we do in FMEA. We don't look for those signals that indicate that there's a problem occurring. Yet one of the mitigation strategies is that if you can detect an impending hazard and create an alarm or a warning for it, it's an option. It's the third option. It's not the preferred. Yet many of you are very familiar with products that have warnings and, and alarms and, and signals that give us indications of something else going on. It's, it is an option, it's not the favorite option. Yet the least favorite option by far is just put a little warning label on it, right? Uh, or we're gonna do some training. Um, some of these things are done, they're done very quickly and they're usually, well, training's not always the least expensive and warnings aren't always the, the best ones. I did find an image for a electrical cabinet in a factory that had a warning label on it saying 
opening this electrical panel will cause death and death, a $50 fine. Now, I don't know if they did a study or if that was, you know, just add insult to injury after you get uh, electrocuted, but then you get your state gets a, a fine on top of it. Um, yet it sure caught my attention. Um, we have so many labels, so many warning stickers, so many uh, codes and, and symbols out there that there's a bit of fatigue there. And so I think somebody mentioned earlier is just adding it to the manual is, is yeah, you keep a lawyer happy and sell another page of your warning, your manual, but it doesn't really work. Um, I, I doubt it. Right. So it's a basic system, right? The hazard analysis and what we do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cut the white wire. Yeah. <laughs> I, I know that's from a movie. I'm just trying to remember which one. <laughs> so. Generally, the, the idea is, is the hazard analysis is done. It's very similar to an FMEA, which many of us are very, and many of our teams are very familiar with. And it's a different focus, that's all. It has some of the same issues, whether we get a team together issue and how well we, we focus on the issues that team on, uh, on the task at hand and do effective brainstorms and, and think through it from different points of view. And then finding the resources and follow through to minimize the hazards that are presented. Now, some will be obvious. Some will, will be, we have to fix that before we can ship it. Some will be so trivial, like the meteor striking my water glass, that we're just not going to design for that. It's, it's just not an option. Where it becomes interesting is in that area where you're working down the list and they're not immediate present danger to all involved in the environment. Uh, it's a, it might happen and it would be bad if it does, but not terrible. Do we fix that or not? Do we address that? And every circumstance is going to be different. But I think the point of this analysis and the idea of why so many organizations and industries expect us to do this is that it's a chance to step back and, and with our team think through how our product is going to interact with the, the folks using the product and moving it, installing it, but also the environment and, and the systems that they're in and around. And have we thought through those basic questions of what happens when some when it when some when something bad is is occurring bad being unsafe and does it feel safe is that even possible is it um, uh, sold and managed appropriately to the correct audience that uh, correct set of customers that are going to use it appropriately is um, is it going to cause to harm in an unexpected way? Now, this is one of those questions of what, how can we find out what we don't know we don't know? Well, like FMEA, hazard analysis is one of those tools to try to chip away at that, to, to try to look at our product like a parent would when your child is just starting to walk. You see the coffee table in a completely different way. Do the same for your, your product. Is that's the point of hazard analysis? Is look at it in a, in a different set of lot eyes, different set of perspectives uh, from it being misused, being mishandled, being uh, used inappropriately, but also how is it regularly used and what could go wrong there, and what kind of harm could come from that? What can you minimize or mitigate? And so. The basic idea is it's focused on safety, which is harm to people, society, environment, other equipment and assets. It's very similar to an FMEA. It's a team-based, it's brainstorming, it's prioritization, and it's, it's minimizing the scoring on those, on those prioritizations. And then we eliminate or reduce or mitigate uh, those risks, those failures.
And at some point, uh, same for your make a decision. Is it safe enough to ship? Is it, have we thought through it with due diligence to make this product appropriate for the market we're sending it to? Market, and it's an ongoing process. It's not a one time and file it, which I think is one of the greatest, uh, it's, that's not terribly useful, and you know that. But, but stepping back and taking the time to think through how your product or system is going to interact is some for industries it's regulated and required. Regulate, yeah, regulate. In other industries, it's just a prudent step to take. Yeah. All right. So let's see. I pull up my last slide here. There's a couple of links and stuff. Let me pull up the. Um, uh, links and stuff that we have. Um, now, most of what I presented was pulled out of, uh, now, uh, aim for your Carl's book, Effective FMEAs. You can find a link to it in the lower right corner. Um, I also mentioned the podcasts. Uh, we're getting really close to going over a half million downloads on the various or half podcasts. You have to rely on for your ability. You have dot FM. You're living for your, you're for your, you're for your, Everybody, yes. it happened for your listening to those, but also your. Um, but so I'll pause here for a second and see what kind of questions we have. Any thoughts? Yeah, you know, Graham, there, and that was one of the things Carl brought up is that, um, uh, in his book is that they're often done in a similar time frame, and one could argue doing the the FMEA first, which includes looking at the severity, the, the safety type things, and what your product can, your design can do, for example, if, if something goes wrong in the design. Um, and then I'd say dovetail that is the appropriate word, is use some of the information and in, in insights from the FMEA, but now look at it from different points of view on, on its hazards as it's used and misused in various ways with more of a focus on, on the safety side of it. Um, FMEA includes safety, reliability, availability, functionality, all these other illities. And then it's step back and look at just the hazard side, the safety side. So I think they work well together. Uh, different sessions with different focus, maybe, maybe the same people. Well, appreciate it, William. That's why I'm doing them. I, and I'm hoping to take these recordings and build a um, kind of library of these fundamentals as the intention I'm going after.